Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Thursday, April 6th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Stoltenberg says that Ukraine must win to join NATO. So NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said Wednesday that in order for Ukraine to become a NATO member, it must prevail in its war with Russia and become more interoperable with the Western military alliance. So Stoltenberg told reporters in Brussels, quote, NATO's position is that Ukraine will become a member of the alliance, and that position has not changed. But we know that there are at least two things you need to address to make that possible. One is that we need to ensure that Ukraine prevails as a sovereign, independent nation. The second thing we need to address is that when this war ends and Ukraine prevails, then, of course, we need to ensure that we have the highest level of interoperability that Ukraine is able to move from Soviet-era standards, doctrines, ways of operating their armed forces, end quote. So Stoltenberg said that the transition away from Soviet standards has already begun, as Ukraine has been flooded with Western military equipment and has been receiving training from the U.S. and other NATO countries. Stoltenberg said that the transition will be a long-term process. He said, quote, this program is more long-term perspective. That is about, you know, building the institutions, helping with the transition, the interoperability, the standards, the doctrines, all of these things that we need to have in place also to move toward membership, end quote. So he sounds like, you know, he's making it sound like it's very far off, but still uh, he's saying some interesting things here. And, you know, this is a message to Russia. And one of Putin's main motives for invading Ukraine was its potential NATO membership and its cooperation with the alliance following the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Kiev. So before the invasion, Putin sought a guarantee from the U.S. that Ukraine would never join NATO, but the Biden administration refused to engage on the issue. At the same time, the U.S. and NATO would not give Ukraine any concrete timeline on when it could become a member. And they've kind of been dangling this membership in front of Ukraine for a while now. Zelensky, in March 2022, he was discussing things, you know, that happened before the invasion. He told CNN, quote, I requested them personally to say directly that we are going to accept you into NATO in a year or two or five. Just say it directly and clearly or just say no. And the response was very clear. You're not going to be a NATO member, but publicly the doors will remain open, end quote. And that's the rhetoric you always hear from the Biden administration, that the door is always open for Ukraine's NATO membership, yet they never give them a real timeline. They just say, yeah, you're going to become a member. Um, but I just think it's important to point out with this, with you know, this being NATO's position, Stoltenberg openly saying, you know, if Ukraine wins this war, they're going to become a NATO member, or they could be. But either way, they have these long-term plans to be supporting Ukraine with military assistance and and it's going to get they want to sign some long-term deals this is you know Moscow sees this and of course Ukraine's neutrality was Russia's key demand during peace talks that were held at the very beginning of the war 
And the Kremlin recently said that it now believes its goals in Ukraine can only be achieved by military means. And when you see NATO leaders saying things like Stoltenberg is saying, this long-term planning that if Ukraine you know, comes out of this war, a sovereign nation, they can become a NATO member and we're going to arm them to the teeth even more. You know, that's the message to Moscow is you have to win this war or this is all, all this stuff is going to happen. So again, I think it, this is just an example of the alliance, you know, prolonging the war with all these great big plans that it has for Ukraine. All right. The next one here, uh, Ukraine will talk Crimea with Russia if its counteroffensive succeeds. So an advisor to Zelensky told Financial Times that Kiev would be ready to negotiate the status of Crimea with Russia if it launches a successful counteroffensive and captures the territory Russia controls that borders the peninsula. So this is Andriy Sibia. Uh, he is a deputy head of Zelensky's office. He said, quote, if we will succeed in achieving our strategic goals on the battlefield and when we will be on the administrative border with Ukraine, we are ready to open a diplomatic page to discuss this issue, end quote. And this is a significant thing to hear a Ukrainian official say. It's the first sign that Ukraine might be willing to seek a diplomatic solution with Russia over Crimea. Uh, Ukraine got cut off peace talks with Moscow in April 2022. And since then, Zelensky and his top aides have called for a complete Russian withdrawal from all the territory that it controls, including Crimea. So that's that's before any peace talks can happen. That's been Ukraine's position. And here this aide to Zelensky is saying, well, if we capture all that other territory, you know, then we can talk about Crimea. And Zelensky also recently signaled that he was thinking about the at least the possibility of negotiations last week when he said that if he loses Bakhmut, he's going to be pressured to compromise with Moscow. But his comments were not as explicit as his, as his aide here, who also did not rule out the idea of Ukraine taking Crimea by force, saying that they won't rule out using the army to liberate Crimea, as as they put it. Uh, but Ukraine's Western backers, including the U.S., doubt that Ukraine has the ability to take the peninsula and a full-blown attack could lead to a major escalation from Moscow. Rear Admiral T Tim Woods, who is the British defense attache in Washington, that's the military official assigned to the embassy, he told Financial Times that Crimea would need, quote, a political solution because of just the concentration of force that is there and what it would mean for the Ukrainians to go in there, end quote. So another comment from U.S. NATO officials have been saying this, that they don't think Ukraine can really take Crimea. So besides the whole military aspect the aspect of this, the people of Crimea don't want to be you know, liberated by Kiev, as polling has shown since Moscow absorbed the peninsula in 2014, that most Crimeans are happy that they're part of the Russian Federation. Ukraine still has a long way to go before it would be close to Crimea's border, and it's not clear if they're going to be able to launch this big counteroffensive that the U.S. wants. It looks like they're preparing for it. Um, who knows how it's going to go or if they're really going to make an effort at it, because Zelensky just said a couple weeks ago that they can't launch a counteroffensive until they receive even more support from the West. And the U.S. just announced yesterday it's shipping more ammunition to Ukraine, but I don't know if that's the support he meant or if he wants those other things. Who knows? Uh, but, you know, 
we'll see what happens, you know, in the in the months ahead because they want this counteroffensive to happen in the spring. All right, the next one here is Zelensky says that Poland will form a coalition to send warplanes to Ukraine. So Zelensky visited Warsaw on Wednesday and said that he believes Poland will form a coalition of NATO countries to send warplanes to Kiev as the Polish led the charge to provide Western-made tanks. Zelensky said, quote, Just as your leadership proved itself in the tank coalition, I believe that it will manifest itself in the planes coalition, end quote. So Poland was the first country to pledge German-made Leopard tanks for Ukraine, which pressured uh, Schultz, the German chancellor, to approve the export. Schultz eventually agreed despite his earlier concerns of escalation, and then Germany decided to send its own tanks to Ukraine, and those are starting to be delivered. And of course, Poland's push to send the Leopard tanks also resulted in the U.S. pledging to send its Abrams tanks. And the U.S. announced that, you know, right after Pentagon officials were saying, no, no, we're not going to send the Abrams. It's impractical. But then Schultz didn't want to be the only one sending tanks. So, you know, he got Biden to, to promise 31 of those Abrams tanks for Ukraine. So Poland recently became the first NATO member to pledge fighter jets and began delivering its Soviet-made MiG-29s. And Slovakia has followed suit by providing also MiG-29s. That's not what Ukraine really wants. They're seeking Western-made aircraft, such as the F-16. So far, we've seen a few European countries say they're open to sending some of their advanced aircraft that they have, whether it's American-made or made by another country. We haven't yet seen any concrete, you know, promise from the U.S. or, say, the U.K. or any of those countries saying, yes, we're going to send these planes for sure. Um, we haven't seen that yet, although the U.S. is preparing for the eventuality, it seems like, because there are at least two Ukrainian pilots that travel to the U.S. to assess their skills to see how long it would take to train them on the F-16. Two that we know of, there could be more Ukrainians uh, in the country at this point for that purpose. All right, the next one here, Seymour Hirsch on the Nord Stream ghost ship. So Seymour Hirsch had another post on his Substack today. It's on a, it's behind a paywall, but uh, Sheer Post reprinted it. Um, they say it's a preview of it, but I think it's most of the article. Um, but really, it's more about the cover-up story and about this yacht that supposedly was used to plant the explosives. I'll just read a little bit of it, um, and there's a few points I want to highlight here. So this is from the article. America's Central Intelligence Agency is constantly running covert operations around the world and all must have a cover story in case things go badly, as they often do. It is just as important to have an explanation when things go well as they did in the Baltic Sea last fall. Within weeks of my report that Joe Biden ordered the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines, the agency produced a cover story and found willing takers in the New York Times and two major German publications. By creating a story of deep sea divers and a crew who did not exist, the agency was following protocol and the story would have been part of the first days of secret planning to destroy the pipelines. The essential element was a mythical yacht ironically named the Andromeda after the beautiful daughter of a mythical king who was chained to a rock naked. The cover story was shared with and supported by the BND, Germany's Federal Intelligence Service. My initial report received coverage around the world, but was ignored by the major newspapers and television networks in the United States. As my story gained traction in Europe and elsewhere, the New York Times on March 7th published a report quoting U.S. officials asserting that American intelligence had accumulated information 
suggesting that a pro-Ukrainian group sabotaged the pipelines. The story said officials who had reviewed the new intelligence depicted it to be a step toward determining responsibility for the pipeline sabotage. The Times story got worldwide attention, but nothing more has been heard since from the newspaper about who did what. In an interview for a Times podcast, one of the three authors of the article inadvertently explained why the story was dead on arrival. The writer was asked about the involvement of the alleged pro-Ukrainian group. Quote, what makes you think that's what happened? They answered, I should be very clear that we know really very little. <laughs> End quote. So on April 3rd, he discusses that the, the Washington Post report that I went over that, that they said some European investigators now doubt that the Andromeda could have sabotaged the pipelines without the help of a second vessel. Some in Europe wondered if the role of the Andromeda was to distract people. Uh, the article did not suggest the Biden administration was, was involved. Again, it, it didn't mention his report, didn't put any suspicion on the U.S., but it did say that these European officials know not to talk about it. So one thing I wanted to mention is D. Zeit. They published a report the same day that the New York Times published their story. And it was the first one that where they said they identified a yacht. And uh, Hirsch here spoke with the reporter in D. Zeit that broke the story. And he contested uh, Hirsch's claim that and, and what his sources told him that it was a CIA cover story that he published. This reporter says, no, he was working on it for a while, and then they rushed to publish it after the New York Times article. And I do remember that the D. Zeit one was published after. And I guess what Hirsch is insinuating here is that the CIA cover story was probably months in the making. Um, but anyway, one other really, really interesting thing in this, and I wonder if maybe I should just write a separate article about this, um, is that. It, he, and this is his conversation with the D. Zeit journalist, I believe. Yeah, Holger Stark. Something that came up in their conversation is that uh, officials in Germany, Sweden, and Denmark had decided shortly after the pipeline bombings to send teams to the site to recover the one mine that has not gone off. If you remember, there was two pipelines, and each pipeline had has two pipes, and three out of four were damaged. One survived, uh, one line of the Nord Stream 2. So listen to this. He's saying that Germany, Sweden, and Denmark, they decided, let's go get those the mine that did not go off, the explosives that did not blow up. He said, again, this is according to that journalist for D. Zeit, that they were too late. An American ship had sped to the site within a day or two and recovered the mine and other materials. Hirsch asked him why he thought the Americans had been so quick to get to the site. And he answered, ah, oh, you know, Americans, they always want to be first. And of course, Hirsch says that there's another very obvious explanation. So apparently, you know, I think that's kind of a big deal that the Americans went in there. Because I was wondering if the investigators had that those explosives that didn't go off. Because you would think that would be able to tell them something. But apparently America went in and grabbed it. All right, the next one here, uh, but I would suggest go read that whole article. It's really interesting. Um, his Substack is really interesting too. It's five bucks a month, but I think it's it's uh, uh, just cool to see the stuff he's putting out. All right, the next one here, Belarusian troops train on Russia's nuclear-capable Iskander missiles. So Belarusian troops have begun training on Russia's nuclear-capable Iskander missiles after Putin announced that he would deploy tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus. According to the Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, Belarusians started training on the Iskander systems at a Russian testing ground on April 3rd. And the, the Belarusian Defense Ministry, they also announced the training. 
So Shoigu first announced back in July 2022 that Russia would transfer these missiles to Belarus. But at the time, there were no plans to send nukes to the country. Now we know they're sending uh, nuclear weapons and they're going to have the missiles that can launch them. Um, so there's that. And the next one here, McCarthy, this is big here. Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, meets Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen in California. So McCarthy met with Tsai on Wednesday, and it marked the highest level meeting between U.S. and Taiwanese officials since the previous House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, visited Taipei in August 2022. And the meeting is historic, and it risks provoking a major Chinese response as it makes McCarthy the highest level U.S. official to host a Taiwanese leader on American soil since Washington severed diplomatic relations with Taipei in 1979 to open up with Beijing. China has warned strongly against the plans and launched a naval patrol in the Taiwan Strait ahead of the meeting. At this point, we might see some news. I mean, I'm recording this before midnight on Wednesday night, so it's early in China right now. Well, it's actually kind of later in the day now. Uh, we might see some more news about big, bigger Chinese drills soon. Uh, it could come out pretty soon. So far, I haven't seen anything major, but China was making, you know, issued a lot of warnings. And when Pelosi made the trip to Taiwan, Beijing launched its largest ever military exercises around Taiwan, which included a simulated blockade and the firing of missiles over the island. So what I've seen so far, China said they sent naval patrols through the Taiwan Strait. And there are some reports of Chinese aircraft carrier or some kind of carrier uh, being near Taiwan. So according to the South China Morning Post, the McCarthy Psy meeting at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley was attended by a bipartisan group of 15 other members of Congress. Ahead of the meeting, China's embassy in the U.S. was contacting U.S. lawmakers to express its deep concern and firm opposition to the gathering. Li Sheng, who is a representative from the Chinese embassy, said in, in an email that China will not, quote, sit idly by in the face of a blatant provocation and will most likely take necessary and resolute actions in response. So Tsai stopped in California on her way back from a visit to Central America. And the White House has downplayed her visit since Taiwanese leaders have made similar trips in the past. But the talks with McCarthy, it's, the on, it's only the third time since 1979 that a Taiwanese president met with a U.S. House Speaker. Happened once in 97 when Newt Gingrich went to Taiwan. It happened in August 2022 when Pelosi went there. And now less than a year later, it happened again. So just the fact that these meetings happened within a year of each other, I think China doesn't want this to be a normal thing. Um, so they might react in a big way. But again, uh, haven't seen anything major yet. All right, the next one here, Blinken cannot reschedule his trip to China after he canceled. So Secretary of State Antony Blinken is looking to reschedule his trip to China that he canceled over the Chinese balloon that wound up floating over the U.S. But Beijing is rebuffing his effort. And this is according to a report from Politico. It says that China has effectively frozen high-level contacts with U.S. officials. An unnamed U.S. official said that the Biden administration is also trying to schedule a call between President Biden and President Xi Jinping and send other high-level officials to China, but they're not having any luck. So before the balloon incident, the U.S. and China were making a point to engage at a high level despite soaring tensions. But since Blinken canceled his trip and the U.S. shot down the balloon 
which ended up over U.S. territory due to unexpected weather. The progress on engagement with Beijing has been reversed. After the U.S. shot down the balloon in February, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin tried to contact his Chinese counterpart, Wei Feng, who has since been replaced. But China declined to take Austin's call, and he hasn't had any luck since then. So Wei was replaced by Li Shangfu, who is a Chinese general who is under U.S. sanctions. And he's under U.S. sanctions for being involved in China's purchase of Russian weapons. The sanctions make U.S.-China military engagement even more difficult, and the Biden administration has not signaled that it will lift them. So tensions between the U.S. and China soared even higher on Wednesday, of course, when McCarthy met Tsai. Um, so we'll see how things play out here. And Blinken, again, it just shows what a horrible diplomat he is, that that was his reaction to the balloon was, I am not going to go to China now. And now, you know, uh, he can't get a hold of him. All right, the next one here, Israeli forces raid the Al-Aqsa Mosque for a second night in a row. And this is from Middle East Eye. So this was on Wednesday night. And Tuesday night was the first time that they did this uh, this week in Ramadan. Not the first time it's ever happened, of course, but the, the beatings, they were really beating on people. I saw some videos of them entering the mosque. Uh, and that uh, provoked some rocket fire from Gaza and then Israel bombed Gaza. I didn't see that there was any casualties. Uh, but now here we have uh, Israeli forces stormed the mosque again. And uh, so this, this could keep spiraling. Israeli forces stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque in occupied East Jerusalem on Wednesday for the second successive night during Ramadan after brutally assaulting worshipers at the site less than 24 hours earlier. Dozens of armed Israeli officers entered the courtyards of the mosque while nearly 20,000 Palestinian worshipers were still performing the Ramadan Tarawih night prayer. Israeli forces fired rubber-coated bullets, tear gas, and stun grenades at worshipers just before the prayer ended to disperse them and clear the mosque. An eyewitness told Middle East Eye they chased after people, beating them with batons and wounding some of them. Uh, this witness told Middle East Eye, quote, they want to create a new reality. They want to empty Al-Aqsa Mosque of Palestinians. What happened, especially yesterday, was catastrophic. The scale of violence was shocking, end quote. So a mosque volunteer who preferred to remain anonymous told Middle East Eye that the mosque had been almost completely emptied of Palestinians within an hour. The raid on Wednesday started slightly earlier than the previous one on Tuesday, apparently in an attempt by Israeli forces to prevent worshipers from locking themselves inside the Kibli prayer hall. So it sounds like they're trying to stay very uh, the night here, and then the Israeli forces go in and clear them out. Um, and I think, you know, that what that witness is saying, it seems like this might continue through Ramadan, and, and this is really going to, uh, I think, just could spiral really out of control here. Uh, all right. In, uh, was it 2021 in, in the spring, uh, these Israeli raids into the mosque sparked the Gaza war that year, which ended up about over 260 Palestinians were killed. A lot of children and a few Israelis were killed by Gaza rocket fire. But, you know, uh, I think it was 260 something Palestinians were killed, including about 60 children in that uh, Israeli bombing campaign on Gaza. All right, the next one here, Iran says that it foiled a drone attack in the Iranian city of Isfahan. 
So Iranian authorities said that they foiled this drone attack. And according to Iran's press TV, the Iranian defense ministry said that one of its facilities in the city had come under attack by a micro aerial vehicle, is how they described it, an MAV, which was shot down by air defenses. The ministry said the attack did not cause any casualties or damage to the facility. Israel is suspected of being behind the attack as it has a history of launching covert operations inside Iran. So if you remember back in January, three small drones, what I believe they were also described as micro aerial vehicles, targeted a facility in the same city, Isfahan, and both Iranian and U.S. officials said that Israel was responsible. Israel has also previously targeted nuclear facilities, scientists, and military officers in attacks inside Iran. They have a history of doing it, and a lot of this has happened in very recent years. The drone attack comes as Israel has ramped up its air campaign inside Syria, launching four airstrikes within one week. Strikes that targeted Damascus this past Friday killed two members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and Tehran has vowed that it will respond. Um, so we'll see. Usually the way that these usually go is that Iran takes a few days and then they they say Israel was behind it, If I guess, if that's what they determined. And then sometimes, you know, U.S. officials, in the most recent one in January, U.S. officials told the Wall Street Journal that Israel was responsible, and they also told the New York Times. Um, and they kind of hinted that the U.S. might have been involved or kind of given Israel the green light because uh, the U.S. and Israel were were talking a lot about Iran at the time. Uh, but it's something that could always spiral out of control, these tensions between Israel and Iran and the U.S. and Iran. Uh, anyway, that is it for our news stories for today. You could go check out our viewpoints. One from Matt Agarist over at the Free... Uh, oh, this is at the Libertarian Institute, reprinted from his... Uh, outlet there the free thought project uh anyway sorry this is about the restrict act the restrict act is a death knell for online speech uh one from doug bandow over at 1945 try george w bush and vladimir putin for war crimes one from ramsey Baroud, selective outrage in palestine the problem is not just smotrich but zionism one from Dave Lindorf, covering up anti-war protests in U.S. media. That's from FAIR. And one from Ryan McMacken over at the Mises Institute, why the regime needs the dollar to be the global reserve currency. Uh, but that's everything. You can always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Uh, like and subscribe to the show on YouTube. We're also on Rumble and Odyssey. And of course, if you watch the video, you could also listen to the podcast version. Uh, wherever you get podcasts and you can leave ratings and reviews where you do that. All that stuff helps. Also follow me on Twitter. I haven't been tweeting that much lately, but it's at the camp Dave. And you could also follow the antiwar.com account on Twitter. Uh, but that's it. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.